Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian podcast. Today we're going to talk about Rosicrucianism. This has been requested uh, by listeners, but there, but I, d- I decided to go for it because there is, I don't know, let, let's say that Rosicrucians borrowed a lot of symbology and ideas from alchemy. And also when we talked about um, John Dee, Rosicrucians were inspired by some of John Dee's ideas and also his his symbols and his... Um, his ideas that symbols have power and that kind of thing. So we'll take a look at, at the kind of secret society and their history. And there's, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. So I decided to, to go ahead and do a show on it. Yeah, so as, as you can imagine, if we're going to talk about a secret society, there's obviously a lot of kind of mysterious um, and also half-truths and you know hard-to-get-to facts about the, the foundation of it and... Um, not just the the actual history of it, but even what they say is the actual history of it, which might you know not be true. So just keep that in mind that I'm not I'm definitely not an expert on secret societies, and um, so we'll go through some of the the clear myths and legends and and um, maybe hopefully some more accurate history of 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 this secret society. So Pete, what is Rosicrucianism? Well, Rosicrucianism, Travis, is a generic term that really kind of gives a, a, some insight to the studies or membership within a philosophical secret society said to have been founded by its, its original founder in the late medieval Germany by the, by the name of Christian Rosenkreutz. It holds you know, a doctrine of orthodoxy built on esoteric truths and ancient past, which, concealed from the average man, provide insight into nature, the physical universe, and the spiritual realm. Rosencrucianism is, a, is symbolized by the rosy cross. Supposedly during Rosenkreutz's lifetime, the order was only a very few select members, namely only eight people, all of them doctors and sworn bachelors. Each doctor undertook an oath to heal the sick without payment and also to kind of keep this secret fellowship. And then before they died, they had to find their own replacement so that Basically, it would remain eight people, you know, throughout the life of the, the secret society. And, um, yeah, you know, it's kind of a neat idea. So, supposedly, and again, supposedly, um, between 1500 and 1600, uh, there was three such generations, you know, from the original eight down. Yeah, until, okay, and then uh, supposedly, according to the story, by 1600, um, they thought that, okay, now... The religious freedom had grown, and um, scientific and philosophical advances had had grown, so the public might benefit from their thoughts or their their philosophy or their knowledge. So the original Rosencrucian Manifesto, which we'll get into into a second, was influenced by the work of the respected Hermetic philosopher Heinrich Kunrat of Hamburg, 
who was in turn influenced by John Dee, and um, specifically his Monas Hieroglyphica, uh, which he published in 1564. We, we talked at length about that on John Dee's show, so I, I would, you know, if you're interested, I think it's a good show. People liked it. Um, give that one a listen. Um, in fact, the invitation to the royal wedding in the chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz, so instant, right away we have alch alchemical symbols tied in with Christian Rosenkreutz, the um, cover page or the, the title page basically has the Monas Hieroglyphica symbol, which we talked about. So first of all, they kind of claim John Dee as a uh, Rosicrucian. He was not. And we talked about that in his show too. There's, there's also a great influence from Paracelsus as kind of philosophy. So there's, there's, you, you can see some influence there. But, but okay, so let's take a look at the supposed founder. And this is, again, kind of according to legend, but um, who was this Christian Rosenkreuz guy? Well, Travis, according to legend, Christian Rosen Rosenkreuz was a doctor who discovered the learned esoteric wisdom on, the on his pilgrimage to the Middle East among Turkish, Arab, and Persian sages, possibly uh, Sufi or Zoroastrian masters, supposedly in the 15th century. Uh, he, he returned and founded the Fraternity of the Rose Cross with himself as Frater CRC as head of this order. Under his direction, a temple called the Sanctus Spiritus, or the House of the Holy Spirit, was built. Yeah, so... Um then, according to their kind of creation myth, uh, his body was discovered by a brother of the order, and um, as is usual in these kind of stories, this was 100, 120 years after his death, yet his body was in perfect in, in a perfect state of preservation. Um, and we've seen this a few times with other saints. Yeah, like with right? popes and, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and yeah. saints. It does happen. And um, supposedly Rosenkreuz predicted this. It was within this Sancto Spiritus, like, you know, the temple that you described. And so it's kind of this um, he heptagonal chamber, which was, you know, built by himself. And it's kind of a storehouse of knowledge. So supposedly there was the sarcophagus in the middle and then all kinds of inscriptions around it. Like, um, I'm going to translate this, but, but basically Jesus has everything to me, by no means empty, freedom of the gospel, the untouched glory of God, the yoke of the law. Um, you know, a lot of kind of cool sounding mystical or religious stuff. You're not, you're not going to try the Latin? No, I think I'll pass. <laughs> Which again, is supposed to hearken to a kind of Christian nature of the founder, right? Now this part I like, because this is this ties it into alchemy. So the a chemical model vitriol, but as an acronym, right? So, you know, V-I-T-R-I-O-L. So it's Visita Interiora Terre Rec in Viennes Occultum Lapidum, which means visit the interior parts of the earth by rectification thou shalt find the hidden stone. Right? So they're talking about the philosopher's stone. I was going to yeah. say that that's what they're trying to infer. Yeah, here, so this right? is like clearly an alchemical kind of in, uh, inspiration here. So again, I don't know if, you know, there's kind of murky history here, but supposedly Christian Rosenkreuz was the last descendant of the Gammelshausen, which is a German family which flourished in the 13th century. So again, you know, I, I have to point out that they keep trying to reach back as far as they can, historical-wise, because, you know, there's not really any concrete proof that they existed before the 17th century, maybe 16th. But they keep trying to reach back as far as they can to, you know, kind of claim some secret knowledge or whatever. 
Um, and so here's one of those attempts. So their, their castle, the Germoshausen, stood in the Thuringian forest on the border of Hessen, and they had embraced this Albigensian, like this Cathar, which was, uh, you know, the, Fran the French considered them uh, heretics, and they were killed en masse wherever they were found. But, but basically, um, Cathars kind of combined like Gnostic and Christian beliefs. That, that's a really simplistic way of putting it, but basically they were considered heretics by the Catholics at the time. So, um, in fact, all of the Germoshausen, that whole family, is basically put to death by Conrad von Marburg, except, supposedly, the youngest son, who was only five years old. And he was carried away secretly by a monk, who was also an Albigensian adept from Langedoc, or however you pronounce that. And the child was placed in a monastery, which was already under the influence of Cathars, where he was then kind of educated in their ways and uh, also introduced to four other uh, Cathars or Al Albigensians. And they, those were later kind of to be associated with sort of the founding of this Rosicrucian order. Um, now at this point, you know, if there's no written testimony, they explain that away as like, well, this was, you know, her heresy and um, so this was just kind of passed down by oral tradition, which is, you know, likely enough story. It's, it's hard to say. Again, bringing it back up to the 17th century, some of the more known occultists kind of included Rudolf Steiner, Max Heindel, and then later uh, Guy Ballard. And then they, they tie in none other than the Count of St. Germain, which we're about to do a show on. Very interesting guy. Yeah, very, yeah. very soon. Or, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, so because we haven't done the show on him yet, and you might not know, he's he's crazy interesting, uh, but but kind of a courtier, an adventurer, an alchemist, and um, he's he supposedly died in like 1784. So now we're up to up to kind of that time period. Steiner, Rudolf Steiner, uh, it's thought that he could be the subject of Rembrandt's "A Man in Armor" painting, um, which was you know. Could also be a portrait of Christian Rosenkreutz himself, but obviously he was long dead, so uh, they, you know Steiner might have been the, the stand-in for that. There's a there's a ton another tie-in from between Saint Germain and Christian Rosenkreutz here. So some people believe that uh, Rosenkreutz was just a pseudonym for a m more famous historical figure, namely Francis Bacon. And since Saint Germain claimed to be several hundred years old, um, people also sometimes think this is purely legend, obviously, but. Um, that Francis Bacon was not other than Saint Germain. So there's another, yeah. <laughs> you know, people keep claiming to be uh, Francis Bacon or vice versa, that, that he was actually Christian Rosenkreutz. So in fact, there's, there's a lot of legends around him, specifically because, you know, Christian Rosenkreutz might have been purely fictitious. And um, also, you know, they didn't really want to tie him down and they never really gave him a birthday and a, and a you know, date of death. Uh, there's, there's many other like legends and things surrounding surround, surrounding him, obviously. Well, the legend Travis presented uh, in the manifestos has been interpreted, of course, symbolically through alchemical texts of the times. They they do not really directly state that Christian Rosenkreutz's years of birth and death, as you mm -hmm. said, but but you know, really, it, it kind of gives you kind of an idea that the manifesto kind of it was around the year. Uh, around the late uh, 1300s, around 1370, 78 or so. It's presented as being the birth year of this, uh, our Christian father, quote-unquote. Yeah. And it's stated that he lived for about 106 years, which would be um, astounding at the time, uh, which, mean that he, which meant that he would have died around 1484. And then, 
so if you take that as fact, then, then they claim that the order was founded around 1407. Yeah, I wouldn't take any of this stuff literally. It, it, you know, it's and, it, just... and it's not, Travis, because you know, many students of occultism uh, consider this to be kind of a ballpark figure. Yeah, or about, even that, even that yeah. those numbers have symbolic meanings or, you know, there's, there's, a lot of be- there's a lot behind this that gives it kind of a, an, an occult significance beyond just years, let's say, right? Yeah, and some of them are using just justification and even using the Pythagorean uh, tradition. Exactly. Uh, to, yeah. to, to, of these objects to get an idea about maybe the, numero- the, 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 the numeric sort of aspects of, of uh, uh, what, what we have here with Rosenkreutz. I was wondering when Pythagorean stuff would pop up and also Kabbalah, because there is a lot of numerology and symbols and code, um, you know, not just like from alchemy, which they use a lot of alchemical symbols, but also, uh, you know, just kind of more vaguer hermetic stuff. But then, yeah, even so even when they say he was born on this date, lived this many years, died on this date, the founding was on this date, because it's a convenient kind of uh, Pythagorean or Kabbalic significance behind those numbers rather than, than anything to do with actual dates. So on the other hand, in the manifesto, they directly say, uh, and this is a quote, we speak unto you by parables, but would willingly bring you to the right, simple, easy, and ingenious exposition, understanding, declaration, and knowledge of all secrets. I mean, how I interpret that is like, okay, so we're we're giving you a bunch of uh, parables and, and uh, symbols and code and whatnot, but it's only so we can get to perfect knowledge and secrets. And so, which makes no sense to me at all, but <laughs> um, sure. You know, so the metaphorical nature of all these legends kind of lends to a, a quote-unquote nebulous sort of quality of the origins of Rosicrucianism. Uh, the opening of, of Rosenkreutz's tomb is thought to have been a way of referring to the cycles of nature to the cosmic events, as well as maybe to the opening of a new possibility of mankind's consequence on the advancement of the 16th and early 17th centuries. Uh, about the same time, though, you know, Rosenkreutz's pilgrimages, pilgrimages seemed, seems to refer to the transmutation steps of the great work. Similar legends can be found in Wolfram von Eschenbach's description of the Holy Grail as lapsus exilis, uh, guarded by the Knights Templar themselves or by the Philosopher's Stone of the alchemists of uh, lapis, lapsus elixir. Yeah. Many things we've, we've mentioned on s- several times in the show. Lapis elixir? Isn't that like stone elixir? It doesn't sound healthy. It, it sounds hard to swallow. <laughs> <laughs> Because he's oh, sharp. Boy. He's a sharp. No, so, so there's a couple like texts that are you know kind of considered like manifestos or um, the, the the corners of their philosophy. So uh, one of them is the the Fama Fraternitatis. So the Fama tells the story of the Father C.I. Right, like so Christian Rosenkreutz, um, later often referred to as C.R.C. Christian Rosenkreutz. Okay, so in his pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Then, um, you know, meeting the secret sages, which we talked about, um, you know, going to, going to Arabia and then, you know, getting this esoteric knowledge, going through Egypt and then um, eventually, you know, meeting, meeting more sages in Spain. So, you know, just gathering the occult knowledge and, and everything that we've seen several times before, including how to create the Philosopher's Stone, which is why we're doing this show. Um, so after his arrival into Germany... Uh, CRC and other brothers established the Rosicrucian order. Okay, so that's in the Fama Fraternitatis, and this is the the text where they um, speak of 
the, that there should be eight doctors and they should, you know, be doing healthcare free of charge, that they don't wear any special clothing and they meet once a year in this mysterious house of the Holy Spirit. What I thought was interesting is that there's six articles that they drew up prior to their separation because they only met once a year, right? They got to, you know, keep secret. So, and, and here's the six. Um, that none of them should profess any other thing than to cure the sick and that free of charge. None of the posterity should be constrained to wear one kind of habit, but to follow the custom of the country, right? So kind of blend in, basically. Um, every year, they would meet at their uh, house, at the temple. And then, like we mentioned in the beginning, every brother should seek a worthy person to succeed him after his death. And then the word CR should be their seal, mark, and character. And then the fraternity should remain secret 100 years, right? Well, you know, in a lot of ways, Travis, this, this sounds like there's some correlation to some of the things we talk about with masonry, um, that uh, there's, a, there's a, that secrecy, there's a, the bringing in new people to, f to fill certain roles, of course, and, and symbolicism, symbolic sort of representations. Uh, you know, so the CR is something that you, you might see in, in masons with the, with the uh, um, uh, protractor, right? Protractor. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. With, with the G and the and the protractor, and the the you'll, you'll see symbol you'll see sim symbolic sort of representations for these fraternal orders um, throughout history, and this is uh, something that that sounds like it's uh, following the same suit. But the secrecy is something that seems pretty important here. Well, another thing this has in common with other secret societies is now now we'll get into some of the legend legends, right? So th that was kind of um, what's in there. Uh, was in their kind of manifesto, but um, it wouldn't be a proper secret society if they didn't try to tie it back as far as they could, right? So one of those is, for instance, that the, Rosicru that the Rosicrucian was actually created in the year 46, when an Alexandrian Gnostic sage named Ormus and six of his followers were converted by Mark, you know, one of Jesus' disciples, and their symbol was said to be a red cross surmounted by a rose, which... You, you could call the rosy cross. And then since that time, um, because it's so old, they actually had some old, like, purifying Egyptian mysteries that they knew about. Um, and, and, you know, the more pure Christian teaching, right? Because they were converted by Mark directly. They, you know, another attempt to tie it further back to another famous kind of society was to tie it to the Knights Templar. So a good 80 years before the publication of the first manifest manifesto, around 1530, the association of the cross and rose already existed in Portugal, in the convent of the Order of Christ, which was, um, before it was renamed the Order of Christ, was in fact the Knights Templar. At the same time, there is a writing by Paracelsus, which contains 32 prophecies with allegorical pictures surrounded by enigmatic texts. And... There is some references to a kind of a double cross over an open rose, and this is one of the examples that the order kind of grasps and says, look, there's the fraternity of the rose cross, which existed far earlier than, you know, whatever we said, 1614 or 1607. Or The legend inspired a variety of works, among them the works of Michael Meyer of Germany, Robert Flood, and Elias Oshmol of England. We've, we've talked about two of those three, by the way. So Theophilus Schweighardt Constantians, Godhardos Artusius, Julius Sperber, Enricos Madatanos, you know, many, many others. 
Um, but for instance, Elias Ashmole. So I think we, we talked about him, or he's on my list. I can't remember. But we haven't we haven't done a show on him yet. Yeah. Okay. So he's he's on my list. Um, he defends the Rosicrucians, um, and there there was many works that so after so like you know seventeenth eighteenth century that they kind of take in turn they take Rosicrucians as an inspiration and they kind of tie in you know. Like, Alchemists. So at first, alchemists were an inspiration for Rosicrucians, but then later, Rosicrucians were an inspiration for alchemists in turn. Let's say so, and they would tie in like um, alchemy with Rosicrucian thought and Paracelsianism, um, which is so. It is kind of important to talk about Rosicrucians in the history of alchemy because um, they they took some of these ideas and then in turn later alchemists kind of took some Rosicrucians ideas and folded it back into the kind of mainstream alchemy. So this in fact, this is interesting. Yeah. So Michael, Michael Meyer, who's definitely on my list, was appointed Pfalzgraf, which is like Count uh, Palatine. Um, by, you, by you know who. Yeah, by none other than... <laughs> here it is Everybody again. drank. Yeah. <laughs> Rudolf II, emperor and, and king of Hungary, king of Bohemia, you know, the, you know, Rudolf II of Habsburg, basically. We've mentioned him a thousand and one times. Um, it's become a drinking game almost. Yeah. But um, he was also supposedly one of the most prominent defenders of Rosicrucians, and um, which I can't confirm or deny, but it, it would make sense. I, I could see that. Uh, supposedly clearly transmitting details of the Brothers of the Rose Cross in his writings. Meyer made firm statements that the Brothers of the Rose Cross exist to advance arts and sciences, including alchemy. Yeah, but, but some people have pointed out that um, their writers don't necessarily point towards, like, creating golds like you know practical alchemy but more of a symbolic and spiritual sort i yeah I, I just don't know about that like i know that that was generally more rare than people kind of assume nowadays like we've talked about spiritual alchemy before and that to a large point it was more of a 19th century invention than anything else but that's not entirely true it's just you know people look through 19th century occult revival and and often see spiritual alchemy where it wasn't but in Rosicrucian's case, I could kind of see that because they definitely had um, strong spiritual and kind of philosophical leanings and all using a lot of symbology. So if someone were to say they're going to transmutate a soul, I could see them saying that. Well, you can see that there's a lot of veiled styles here, of course, yeah. bringing in a lot of religious aspects of the triumphant. And so we see with these three writings conveyed in nine stages of the uh, involative, evolutive transmutation of the threefold body of the human being, the threefold soul, and the threefold spirit, among other esoteric knowledge related to the path of um, initiation. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So if someone's going to talk about transmutation of the soul, okay, I I guess I could see them saying that. Um, but overall, it's I think it's more overemphasized than what really happened. Yeah. There's there's one theory that the Rosicrucians left for the east. Um, you know, caused by instability in the Thirty Years' War. There's a couple people that kind of claim that. Yeah, but obviously not everybody agrees. I mean, there's there's no way to know that for sure. Some people say that, no, they, they always kind of stayed put or were mostly in Germany in their early stages. Yeah, and then there's there's kind of a, an interesting theory that they were based on the occult tradition inspired by the mystery of the College of Invisibles. Have you, have you ever heard of that before? I think I went there for the first two years of college. Because you didn't go to college, I didn't. It kind of reminds me of uh, there's a there's a Discworld. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. The, is it is it maybe it's called the Invisible College or Invisible User? I, I can't remember. Great series but, of books, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that yeah, very ominous sound. The College of the Invisibles. Yeah, so it's it's kind of the 
precursor to the Royal Society. And I, you know, I, I'm not an expert on this. I would take this as a kind of grain of salt, but with a grain of salt. But the the idea is that there was this kind of network of astronomers, professors, mathematicians, nat- natural philosophy, natural philosophers as far back as the 15th century, and you know, you 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 get this circle of many people that we've talked about, like Johannes Kepler and um, Redicus, John Dee, Tycho Brahe, and which kind of gives rise to the Invisible College, which in turn kind of gives rise to um, the Royal Society, or at least a precursor of the Royal Society, which was founded in, you know, 17th century, basically. So are we talking, Travis, more here of a think tank of, of some of like-minded yeah, people? Yeah, and, and I mean, I don't know if this was like a later... Someone tried to label what was happening at the time, and and because we when we talked about all these guys, we noted that look, there was a lot of letters flying around, and people were sending each other books to kind of, uh, you know, I wouldn't really call it peer review, but in a sense, yes, you know, you you wanted people to kind of comment on on people's works, so you're yeah sure, so maybe there was a precursor, and then much later they called it the College of the Invisibles. I mean, I don't really yeah, it, it's a term that I don't think popped up really before the Royal Society, but well, who I, knows? You know, Robert Boyle actually uh, really kind of, I think he nailed it by you know calling this a, a philosophical type of college in a sense, by saying, quote unquote, the cornerstones of the invisible, or as they term themselves, the philosophical college, do now and then honor me with their company, quote, mm-hmm. ended right there. So, uh, you know, I guess, it, I guess it is a sense that people are trying to put a, some kind of name to this at, at some point, uh, but it was, I think it was just known uh, for something that kind of, had like-minded people around in it, yeah. You know, to kind of further the the, the thoughts of, of of Rosicrucianism. Yeah, um, John Wilkins and and John Wallace described those meetings, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but it, but um, they they basically said around the year 1645 uh, in London, they had the opportunity to to meet some of these these kind of you know people from diverse backgrounds, and and so they they agreed to kind of meet on a weekly basis in London at a certain time and date. And under a certain penalty, the Rosicrucians kind of evolved over time. And then in the 18th century, they kind of expanded in their philosophy, let's say, and they added uh, Egyptian, Greek, um, Druidic mysteries, which I have to say must have been neo-Druidic mysteries because we don't know what Druidic mysteries are, but uh, to their kind of alchemical system. So they would, you know, kind of... I. I don't know what to make of that. I, I kind of see that as just adding more symbols. I, and I, I think they needed the gravitas. I mean, if you're going back and adding Egyptian and Greek sort of like, uh, methodologies and ideas yeah. to well, what you're doing. Well, Greek, sure. And Greek was there from the beginning. And Greek mysteries, okay, sure, you know, that's, that's possible. We already mentioned Pythagoras and that kind of thing. But uh, Egyptian, I mean, this is before the Rosetta Stone and Druidic mysteries. We still don't know what that means. So, again, I kind of just see this as, you know, adding more symbols and, you know, something that was pseudo-Egyptian and pseudo-Juridic to their, to their philosophy. Well, this type, this type of, of thought, though, kind of really piqued the entrance, interests later on of uh, the Nazis during, in Germany at the time. Uh, with their occult roots in Nazism, they kind of were inspired by some of this stuff, uh, yeah, looking back on it, I, I right? I think they were, and it's, um, yeah, just, I think that's not hard to do. You, you have a German secret society that claims to have roots in a you know, kind of crusader order, or even go back even further. 
then yeah, that's, absolutely. Sure. That's the stuff the Third Reich was eating up. Eating up. I mean, that's what they exactly. wanted, right? Yeah. So yeah. I, I wouldn't read too much into that, really. <laughs> um, yeah, some Nazis were really interested in that. Yeah. So, so there's there's kind of a Freemason link here, and some people claim that there's kind of one branch of Rosicrucians that. Um, believed that it was some of the leaders of the Rosicrucian order had actually founded or invented Freemasonry, and therefore only them really knew the kind of secret meanings of Masonic symbols. And the Rosicrucian order had been founded by Egyptian Ormusa or Lichtweise, who had emigrated to Scotland with the name Builders from the East. Okay, so then the original order disappeared and was supposed to have been resurrected by Oliver Cromwell <laughs> as Freemasonry. Yeah, so then the Golden and Rosy Cross group published this Geheime Figuren, or like secret symbols, of the 16th and 17th century Rosicrucians. I just can't think, Travis, that these guys really, that the Masons would have really, uh, really liked the idea of the Rosicrucians coming in and, and usurping their, their history, saying that they're actually an offshoot of Rosicrucians. Um, yeah. And, and actually taking the idea that, that they were builders of, of some point, because that's what, what Masonry is, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I can see there might be a tug of war of power here about what secret society it should be beholden to, to whom. Um, and that, that in itself is kind of interesting at this time period. In any case, we, we know that there's a kind of long history of secret societies in general in the, in the United States. And it shouldn't be any surprise that with a huge number of German Im- immigrants, even you know in colonial days, but, but also later, that there was a kind of Rosicrucian order founded in, in the States. Um, there's, you know, 1915, there was one in New York City, and I, I think it's still around. I mean, you could you could still be a Rosicrucian in this day. So, um, feel feel free to if you're out there and listening, feel free to correct me on any any of this stuff. Um, but the the history does go back, you know, before then. There's there was definitely Rosicrucians that that came over, you know, in the 19th century and and possibly before uh, to the states or you know to the Americas. Let's say so. There's actually you know Rosicrucian history of the United States is probably almost about as as old as the United States itself, just like, you know, most of the founding fathers were most, I don't know, a majority, minority. Yeah, many of them were Masons. Yeah, were, were Freemasons. Yeah. So um, this isn't this isn't that different. Um, there's a rich history, obviously, but our, our cutoff date for, you know, history of alchemy is somewhere in the, in the 19th century. <laughs> but um, even the 20th century and, and up to present date, there's there's uh, still orders of Rosicrucians in the United States and elsewhere in the world. So it's, it's pretty un- interesting stuff if you want to look it up online. But I think for us here tonight, I hope we gave you somewhat of an of a overview of, of its founding and some of its more interesting legends and who they were. And like anything, anything that you might pique your interest with this program, please feel free to write us uh, to give us some insight if we've missed something with this because it's... Uh, uh, you know, a, a, a secret society has has uh, has a, a lot of, a lot of levels of information that may not be easily attainable by folks that are, are just researching it for the first time. So, uh, yeah, we do appreciate your it's, feedback. It's kind of frustrating to uh, if you ever try to research a secret society. There's because if you just look it up online. Oh yeah, you. I mean, Google has a thousand pages of results. Yeah, but you know, try to find. I mean, at the same time, you're always going to have people that will will say, "Hey, I'm here to spill the beans," and 
you're, you're trying to you know take that with a grain of salt because you know usually they've left that order under some bad situation. So are they telling you the truth? Yeah. Um, so you you, well, you have a hard time weighing these things. And yeah. One thing I, I notice is that anytime there's a camp with a theory about something, then there's a camp with an opposing theory, and it's like okay, so which yeah, what historians do you trust more? And it could both be reputable historians, and it's just really hard to tell. Um, but still, nonetheless, if you think you have some insight and you'd like to uh, write to us, then by all means, feel free. So we did get some feedback from a listener named Mike. And Mike is a Freemason and was able to kind of give a little bit of insight in the relationship between Freemasons and Rosicrucians. So this is um, what he sent me, and I'll, and I'll just kind of uh, semi-read, semi-paraphrase it. But So the, the impression I got from his email is that Freemasonry kind of has a a more um, traceable history, maybe, let's say. But it derives in the 16th century in Scotland. And, of course, there's a lot of, again, like like Rosicrucians that we saw that, you know, Rosicrucians tried to tie it all the way back to ancient times. And Freemasons did the same. And there was some aspect of this kind of evolving from, you know, actual stonemasons and sort of uh, maybe unionizing in a way. But then they also mixed aspects of, you know, mystic Judeo-Christianity, right? So, and this has also been evolving, like the the lore as a whole has been created and recreated and changing and and has been changing well into the 18th century, including the fact that many of the members or most of the members were no longer actual stonemasons, right? There's kind of a mix between stonemasons and just other people that, that joined the club. Now, if you look at the Rosicrucian manifestos, you see some of the common themes um, below the surface of Freemasonry, which kind of relate to the ideas shared in those manifestos. The listener points out that um, this isn't unique. This was, you know, these kind of ideas were shared by uh, many other groups um, dating back as, as, you know, as far as pre-Renaissance. Mike wrote that if you wanted to kind of label exactly what is Rosicrucian philosophy, Tobias Churton, um, who said that it's kind of a a mix of the idea of science, spirituality, and religion coming together in one sort of philosophy um, because, according to them, they were one. Every discovery in science was a discovery of God's work, which then should bring about a spiritual experience, right? So that's that's kind of the uh, um, overall thought. And, and again, there's many groups that thought that and, or had that in common. So... Spiritual alchemy was definitely a key to their writings as through that process you would find that you were in possession of the divine spark. So this is, of course, um, within the framework of ideas prevalent among German intellectuals of the 17th century. And um, this is also not totally different from things that, like, say, Paracelsus or John Dee uh, would have said, or at least that was then, you know, an inspiration for later people. So... Now, what's interesting is that Mike pointed out that there was never a secret brotherhood, right? So the Rosicrucians never really existed from the get-go. It was a series of manifestos, and especially in the beginning, it was nothing more. So there was, it was three works that were public, published, and they had all these stories and legends with them, but they were really just that. So, you know, it wasn't a cabal of people writing their manifestos. It was three authors writing three books, okay? So... That's the beginning and end of it, except that then according to that line of thought, anyone claiming to be a Rosicrucian or a member of, you know, Rosicrucians 
are actually kind of pseudo-Rosicrucians. So there have been many such groups, and even shortly after the time of the, the, the manifestos being published, he goes on to say that there's actually many, many of these groups, and many of them trying to tie themselves back to the original eight doctors, right? Or at least the, the, you know, the first generation of doctors. Mike has the view that these were more allegorical writings and, and nothing more. So, um, so, you know, his point of view is that if you actually wanted to claim heritage from the Rose Cross, from Christian Rosenkreutz, then you'd basically have to prove ancestry from one of the three writers. So he's saying that it's really, it's just three authors wrote these three books and that's the beginning and end of it. There's nothing, myst you know, nothing uh, ancient or kind of mysterious about it, really. Um, it's just the contents of the books, you know, appear that way. But, so as you have these pseudo-Rosicrucian groups popping up in the late 1700s, now they actually are groups, throughout Europe, they use Masonic lodges as their springboard. So these European lodges offered higher grade degrees, which they claimed to be of Rosicrucian origin. So now we, we kind of see that Masonic lodges are taking this in. So there's actually a much deeper connection between the two, that you had these kind of pseudo-Rosicrucian groups, and um, then Masonic's kind of legitimize, le like legitimizing them in some way, right? So it's kind of a two-way street, because in those original, manifesto in a, original manifestos, like we said, you have a lot of alchemical symbols, right? Well, when these Masonic lodges kind of um, furthered some of these pseudo-Rosicrucians, um, that's, that's a quote, by the way, so if you're a Rosicrucian, don't, don't get angry at me, but as they furthered these Rosicrucians, and he actually has them in quotes, like he, then the two-way street part is that some of the Masons actually got um, influenced by the symbols in the manifestos and kind of took them in, just like we saw Rosicrucians taking in all kinds of Egyptian and Greek and whatever um, symbols and, and mystical meanings and that kind of thing, and I, ideas especially. So now we have Masons taking some of these ideas also. So um, these neo-Rosicrucian groups kind of owe a lot to the Masonic Lodges, but the Masonic Lodges also... Um, kind of broaden their horizons a little bit in terms of symbology and, and ideas by some of these Rosicrucian manifestos, manifestos. So there's, and then today you can kind of see Rosicrucians as maybe like a special forces of the Masonic lodges. So you have various Masonic Rosicrucian bodies, which are invite only to brethren who show an interest in alchemical or spiritual alchemy, alchemical concepts. So you have a Freemason, and he's, he's kind of interested in alchemy. Then they say, hey, you know what? We got this little group for you. So it's a um, Masonic alchemical group that they just tie the name Rosicrucian, Rosicrucian to because of that symbology. That's, that's some pretty interesting insight. So, it is, so it's actually tied closer than maybe I thought. And, yeah, and, and, and what I mentioned to Mike was I did come across a lot of this stuff especially in modern times, especially when with U.S. sources like that uh, Rosicrucian groups and Masonic lodges in the States um, do, do, you know, claim to be related in some ways. But I wasn't sure how that, fed how that fed back through history. And our cutoff date is the 19th century. So obviously a lot has changed with these um, societies in the 20th century. And so I tried to ignore all those sources. 
And then the problem with these is that, I think I might have mentioned this before in the actual show, but trying to research this stuff on the internet, the internet is full of conspiracy theories and, you know, Masonic lizard men and whatever. So to try to delve through all that stuff and try to pick out the kernels of truth, I probably discarded a lot of things that actually were probably reliable because I just didn't trust it. Like I just, you know, I'd read something and like, oh, you know, it's got a black background, you know. So it, it is great to, uh, it is really great that, that Mike wrote in and, and thanks a lot, Mike. And, you know, again, we, we definitely would love to elicit any corrections or ideas or any kind of feedback that, that you have to give us. So this was, you know, kind of interesting that this was like a couple of days after we published the show, I instantly got some feedback and was then able to amend the episode. So it's greatly appreciated, and, and by all means, let us know where we've strayed, and um, you know if you can point us in the right direction or to some great sources. That's that's always it's always a help. On occasion, I have gone back and updated shows, which means if you've never re-listened to old shows, you might not even notice. But um, I'll just kind of stealthily edit old shows and, and make corrections as as they trickle in. Um, but I do also I'm slowly getting the website updated and adding more content regarding each show. Um, so if you go back and check some of those pages, they're, they're filled in now. And that's also a great place for me to like add corrections and that kind of thing to, to older shows. So by all means, even if it's, a, even if it's one of our earlier episodes, um, we're not above you know, re-recording a show or, or making corrections and that kind of thing. So yeah, thanks a, thanks a lot. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com, or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page, or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast, All About the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.